so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. What you are, are you wearing lotion? You are so smelly. Are you this wearing morning. girly like, lotion? Smell not smelly, smell, um, you are prone to smelling this morning. What is up with you? You kind of smell like a girl, and that's why I'm wondering what's happening. <laughs> I have cologne, I have Alpine Old Spice deodorant on, I have... <sighs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me in studio is Brent Leatherwood. Howdy, y'all. It's good to be with you once more. On this chilly day, I'm surprised you're not wearing your parka. I've got a pea coat upstairs, and I kind of I kind of wish I'd brought it down here into the studio. Because it's a, it's a, a blustery 70 degrees <laughs> in the studio. <laughs> so, but it doesn't, it feels... It don't feels, you all feels, wear your pea coats when it it's 70 degrees? It feels a little degrees. chilly. You need to go back to Florida where you used to live. (laughs) Well, let's talk about what's been happening lately, and we'll start off with what the ERLC has been featuring this week. First, you know the Dobbs arguments were held, was that last week? (laughs) That was last week. It it feels like a month ago, and it it feels like a... It feels like Epic a lifetime. Month. Yes. And I feel like I'm. we're still on COVID time. We're just all the time just runs together and it's hard to tell the difference. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about the Dobbs case for a while up until the Supreme Court lets us know what their decision is. And we'll be talking about it because life is so precious and so valuable and we won't cease to talk about it because the Lord is so clear about the value of life. And One of our colleagues, Jordan Wooten, has written a piece titled, How the Debate on Life Might Be Won Through Friendship. This is a beautiful piece. I highly recommend you go to our site and read it. And it's about how we can walk in the footsteps of Jesus and be known as friends of sinners. And of course, while it's more complex than just a phrase, and while there might be lots of debates about how to move forward in the pro-life movement, what it looks like to be a friend of sinners, how to engage the lost. Surely, as Jordan points out, we won't win anyone over with finger-wagging and a hateful spirit and a lack of love. Because as believers, like Paul says, without love, I'm nothing. I'm a clanging gong. And that's what we will sound like to people that don't have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. So, Read this piece and pray that the Lord would give you this kind of heart and use you to bring about change in somebody's life. Jordan's piece here reminds me of uh, Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And the reason I I say that is because I feel like Jordan's piece is 
inviting us and reminding us as Christians that that we really do need to do this. And I think there is a, a tendency in our culture right now to like close yourself off from anyone who has, gosh, even the smallest sort of disagreement with you. And, you know, that's not to paper over something as serious as abortion and the ending of preborn lives. Like, that. <laughs> this is, if anyone has been with us over the last week, uh, you will know that we obviously uh, believe that is a, a crucial issue for our culture to get right. But that said, we we need to be out there and being hospitable to folks. Uh, truly, it, it can make a difference because everyone is expecting, uh, because of this culture that we live in, that if you disagree with them, you're you're just going to turn your back on them and you're not going to have anything to do with them. But if you can work through those disagreements, uh, overcome those disagreements, show hospitality in the midst of those disagreements, be have disagreements without being disagreeable, it will help people remain open-minded to the arguments that we are making about really important issues like like abortion. And, you know, I think underlying all of this is that we never want to foreclose the opportunity for people to hear the gospel. And if if we just burn those bridges, shut down those avenues of communication because we just feel like we can't be friends with somebody, well, then we might be closing down an avenue that the Lord is intending to use uh, for the gospel. That's good encouragement, Brent. And you know, it, we really make it more difficult than it is. Jesus himself said the whole law is boiled down to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And in my own life, when I am putting up barriers to that and I am focusing on just all the things that I find wrong with somebody and what they believe, which again, like you said, that's not to um, discredit legitimate disagreements. But when I'm doing that, really, it's because I'm not focusing on that person. I'm focused on uh, myself. And there's not a spirit of love that's pervading my heart for somebody else. Because loving our neighbor is inconvenient, and it is complex, and it's oftentimes for the long haul, and oftentimes you don't get back what you want to put into it or what you want to get back from it. So anyway, love God, love our neighbor. Mm -hmm. And um, Well, in Jordan— he beautifully leaves in uh, Luke seven uh, into into his article here, where the woman comes before Jesus and and uh, cleans his feet with a jar of perfume and and I just like this line that he says in here. While all the men around the table were clamoring for a spot in Jesus's inner circle, it was the most unlikely character who left the table as his friend. That's a that's a great line from mm -hmm. Jordan. Yes, it's so good. And it it was the woman known as the sinner. And truly, if we were walking with Jesus back then, we would have questioned what he was doing. I feel I would have. I know I would have. So anyway, I'm thankful for the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And I'm thankful for an article like this by Jordan. Our next article is by Mark Kelly, and it's titled Five Basic Truths About Biblical Justice. And you know, justice is one of those words in our current culture, especially among Christians, that we throw around and we try to browbeat one another with and we try to outdo one another with as far as our definitions and how we understand it. And, and we try to find things wrong with 
how people are defining it. And yes, there is a place for these legitimate discussions. And what I appreciate about this article is that it's it's basic, yet it's helpful. It's not nuanced based on culture's definitions and all the arguments that come along with that, but on what the Bible says. And uh, he says this in one of the paragraphs, popular misconceptions must not be allowed to define social justice. We must not be deceived into supporting any agenda at the expense of God's kingdom. What we must do is lead people into new birth relationships with Jesus and teach them to walk in God's ways. And amen, that's, that's the people that God has called us to be, and that's the people that we should strive to be with his help. And then the last article I wanted to highlight is about a case that's being heard before the Supreme Court as we're recording today, which is Wednesday. And this is by our policy staff out of D.C. And it's an explainer titled, What is Carson versus Macon About? This is an important religious liberty case having to do with public and private education. Honestly, it's one that I'm having a little bit of trouble understanding. So, Sneak peek, we're going to talk a little bit about it in the culture section. So Brent, who has spent lots of time in politics, will help us understand this case and the bearing that it could have on uh, society. Yes, Lindsay, you're right. We have an article coming uh, later in the culture section that talks about this case because it is an important religious liberty case at its heart. Uh, We are asking the court to essentially close a loophole that the state of Maine thinks it's found, and uh, it it basically allows the state to discriminate in an unconstitutional manner against private religious schools. And we think that's wrong, and and that's what we have asked uh, the court to consider. And uh, so, yeah, that's what's in this explainer, and that's what we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. Well, I look forward to talking about that and you giving us some insight into that. So let's get ready to move into our culture section. We have a lot of other good pieces on our site, as I say every week, but I may be biased, but I think it's true. But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, tell us what's been happening. Sure. So we begin this week with our top story And it uh, comes to us from the international space. ABC News has this. President Biden confronts Vladimir Putin over Ukraine in their high-stakes meeting. President Joe Biden told Russian President Vladimir Putin during a video meeting on Tuesday that the United States, quote, would respond with strong economic and other measures in the event of military escalation, the White House said, as Russia builds up its forces on the border with Ukraine. He told President Putin directly that if Russia further invades Ukraine, the United States and our European allies would respond with strong economic measures, Biden's top national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, said Tuesday of the call, which the White House said lasted two hours and one minute. Putin spoke from his residence in the Russian resort city of Sochi. Biden was in the White House Situation Room. Uh, The White House released a photograph showing him seated with Sullivan, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Eric Green, a senior advisor on Russia. During the meeting, the first conversation between the leaders since July, Biden told Putin that we would provide additional defensive material to the Ukrainians above and beyond that which we are already providing, and that the United States would fortify our NATO allies on the eastern flank with additional capabilities in response to such an escalation. Now, I know Putin has been in the news quite a bit. There's been chatter about things happening with Russia, talks of wars and invading Ukraine. But why this high-stakes meeting with President Biden? 
Well, in that first part that I just read, it kept talking about an escalation. And um, what that means is essentially there's a quite a bit of intel out there suggesting that Vladimir Putin has plans to invade Ukraine. And so from the article, a senior Biden administration official said Monday, the U.S. was watching a series of events unfold similar to the lead up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014 when it annexed the Crimean Peninsula. That included moving troops to its border with Ukraine, coupled with a significant spike in anti-Ukrainian propaganda on social media, the official said. So there are some estimates out there that are saying Russia has plans to move 175,000 troops to their Ukrainian border, uh, which is a massive troop mobilization. And they're starting to see uh, some of these social media posts out there that are causing dissension uh, in this area. And Russia Russia likes to say, oh, well, this part of, of Ukraine is uh, historically Russian. A number of people there uh, still speak Russian. Uh, and honestly, Vladimir Putin is a very dangerous actor on the global stage. And he has designs for recapitulating the old Soviet Union and expanding Russia's borders. Uh, he has even talked glowingly about how the Soviet era uh, was really kind of the the pinnacle moment in Russian history. And, you know, we should not forget that communism was their uh, form of government and all of the millions upon millions of deaths uh, that were caused by that regime. And so uh, to think that there's a world leader out there that wants to go back to that uh, should be very concerning and alarming to all of us. And in the in the middle of this, between America and our NATO allies uh, that are concerned about uh, Russia, you know, trying to to go into Eastern Europe, uh, in the middle of all this is the the country of of Ukraine, and they are in a very precarious position right now. And that's really what uh, this meeting centered on. All right, uh, moving on from that to the aforementioned uh, Supreme Court case, Carson v. Macon. And this story comes to us from NBC News. It's titled The Supreme Court to Decide Whether States Can Refuse to Pay for Religious Education. The Supreme Court on Wednesday will consider whether states that give money to parents for their children's high school tuition can exclude schools offering a religious education. In recent years, the court has been especially receptive to claims of religious discrimination. It ruled last year that when states make tuition money generally available, they cannot exclude schools that are run by religious institutions. In the, that particular case, uh, the Espinosa case involving a school program in Montana, some justices questioned whether there was a meaningful difference between discrimination based on a school's religious status and that based on a school's use of government money to teach religion. We acknowledge the point, but need not examine it here, the ruling said. Now the court has agreed to examine that question in a case from Maine that invites the justices to take the next step and say schools cannot be excluded even if they offer religious instruction. So this is the, the loophole that I mentioned earlier, Maine seemingly has found this loophole and is saying, oh, well, we're, we're just funding secular education. 
The state makes tuition money available to families in areas that do not have public high schools to use the money to pay for attendance at public or private schools in other communities. But the schools cannot be sectarian, defined by the state as those that promote a particular faith or belief system and teach material, quote, through the lens of this faith. Two sets of parents sued, claiming the program violates their religious freedom. So here's one of my questions that I think may sound dumb, so forgive me if it does. If I was one of these parents, how would I have been clued in to know that this violates my religious freedom? Meaning, you hear so much about separation of church and state and government money not being used to to fund things, you know, like seminary education or your church or whatever it might be. So in my mind, I think I would have just thought, oh, well, this is a private religious education. So of course, I'm not supposed to use government money for that. Help me think about this because this is why I'm confused. So, all right. So go back to the, the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And it's that last part in particular uh, that that is important. So the court has been fairly consistent, uh, particularly over the last few years, about ensuring that uh, religious entities that vie for public funds are not discriminated solely because they are religious-based in their work that they, they do or the services that they provide. And here, Montana is, is trying to say, oh, well, we are simply funding education that is secular in nature. But for many of these parents uh, in these very rural parts of Maine, the only option that they have is to actually go to a religious school. And Maine is saying, oh, well, we're, we're not going to pay for that. But you're offering this resource so that kids can go to school. Essentially, you, you're uh, setting up a situation where there is separation solely based on religion. And that is discriminatory. That is, in, in our view, unconstitutional. And honestly, I mean, with the track record that this court has established over the past few years, I, I think this is going to be a loophole uh, that is closed because you are, I mean, you're discriminating based on on where these families happen to live. And, and then you're discriminating because they are seeking uh, an education and it just happens to be at a, at a religious institution. That, to me, this is actually a, a fairly, uh, it's an important case, but I think it's going to be pretty simple in, in how the court comes down on it. Well, and how has the ERLC been involved in this case? Sure. So you mentioned we will have an explainer on this. I think we have a couple other pieces coming this week to just help Christians understand uh, the various facets of this case and how the rulings may affect religious institutions. But we've also been in front of the court a couple of times uh, on this case, both asking the court initially to grant cert, in other words, uh, schedule a hearing on it and render a decision. And then we've also filed a, a brief on the on the merits of the case itself, just kind of fully helping the court to understand uh, the ramifications that this case will have for the religious community. We joined that uh, with a broad group of, uh, of folks uh, that, are, that are in uh, the faith community. And I, I should also point out, uh, one of our trustees, uh, John Whitehead, he's at a firm out of uh, Missouri, and they are part of the team that is representing the parents in this case. So, uh, but it will have a Baptist press story that will be coming out uh, about the oral arguments today. And we expect that 
more than likely the court will rule on this and, and their decision, uh, the opinion will come out towards the end of the term, probably about May or June. So let me ask a behind-the-scenes question about how this works. When you, when organizations file a brief or they petition the court to grant cert, does that make, like, the more people that do that, does that make the Supreme Court more likely to take up a case? Well, I don't, I don't know if it's uh, exactly contingent upon that. Essentially, what, what the court is asking folks in, in any space, folks that have an interest in this case, put it that way, they're asking those individuals, those legal minds, tell us why we should take this case. Make your best case for why the Supreme Court needs to hear this case and render uh, a decision. Then once they do that and, and the case gets scheduled, then they invite those same uh, parties who have interest in it. Those are called amici uh, to file individual briefs, amicus briefs, and and that's what we joined in this case and, and many other cases. Uh, sometimes we are the lead party uh, on those briefs. Other times, such as this one, we join a broad coalition of organizations, and we 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 make sure that. Uh, religious liberty uh, arguments are put in front of the court. Thank you. Very helpful explanation. Our next article comes to us uh, from the Associated Press, and it kind of takes us a little bit back into the international space. China says that U.S. diplomatic boycott violates Olympic spirit. So the AP reports this. China accused the United States of violating the Olympic spirit on Tuesday after the Biden administration announced a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Games over human rights concerns. Human rights groups have pushed for a full-blown boycott of the Games, accusing China of rights abuses against ethnic minorities. The U.S. decision falls short of those calls but comes at an exceptionally turbulent time for relations between the powerhouse nations and was met with a barrage of criticism from China. The U.S. is attempting to interfere with the Beijing Games out of ideological prejudice and based on lies and rumors, foreign ministry spokesperson Zhao Lijian told reporters. The boycott seriously violates the principle of political neutrality of sports established by the Olympic Charter and runs counter to the Olympic motto, more united, Zhao said. The diplomatic boycott comes as the U.S. attempts to thread the needle between stabilizing difficult relations with Beijing and maintaining a tough stance on trade and political conflicts. The U.S. has accused China of human rights abuses against Muslim Uyghurs in the northwest Xinjiang province, suppressing democratic movements in Hong Kong, committing aggression against self-ruled island Taiwan, and more. So the AP in, in writing this, uh, it said the U.S. has accused China. Well, Yes, the U.S. has accused China because these things are verifiable. Uh, earlier this summer, the Southern Baptist Convention at our annual meeting, we passed a resolution condemning the Uyghur genocide uh, that is occurring by the Chinese Communist Party. We have all seen the, well, honestly, the hostile takeover of Hong Kong by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, stifling dissent snuffing out any sorts of voices out there for democratic reform. And we've seen all of the military posturing and bluster uh, that has been aimed at the uh, island of, of Taiwan. So, look, China right now is being very aggressive in its posture. And uh, last week, 
they had kind of floated that uh, there there may not, in fact, be any official delegations allowed to come to the to the games. Uh, and this week, the Biden administration is is saying, "Well, we're not going to." So, because of that, at the end of the at the end of the day, it may be a bit of an empty gesture, right? Because if Beijing is saying, "Well, nobody was invited," and the Biden administration, "Well, we weren't going to send anybody," uh, I would say this: I'm glad that they undertook this diplomatic boycott, and I would urge the Biden administration to do more to confront China morally uh, because of all of this very deeply concerning uh, behavior that China is exhibiting on the world stage that frankly could, I mean, it could destabilize things in the Pacific region in a drastic way. I don't think anybody wants that, but China does need to be confronted and it needs to be told your actions are disqualifying and and you therefore uh, cannot be at the table uh, with with other nations. So that's the nature of some of the conversations that we've had with the State Department and with the the Biden administration, and and we are hopeful that more uh, will be done because much more needs to be done on this front. China has got to be a terrifying place to live. I just I just cannot imagine being a citizen there and being subjected to this type of tyranny. And as you've mentioned, the ERLC is constantly working behind the scenes to raise the alarm about the human rights abuses in China. The ERLC just sent a letter to Secretary of State Blinken regarding the Uyghur Forced uh, Labor Prevention Act. And uh, because it is kind of, is it right that in in D.C. you're getting wind that it's kind of being sidelined for Mm -hmm. other priorities, which is not okay. Human rights should always take precedent over other things that are being worked out. That's right. There's been several outlets, uh, including the the Washington Post, that have reported that the officials within the Biden administration, particularly the State Department, have told leaders on the Hill, leadership, democratic leadership on the Hill, to hold on these bills, to water them down. And and so we, we sent a letter uh, to the Secretary of State, uh, registering our deep concerns with this. Have the moral courage to do what is right. And making these sorts of moves and broadcasting to the world that this is unacceptable, that's the right thing to do. You know, I was watching a news story the other day about Pearl Harbor and the correspondent, Harry Smith, who actually looks like a, a friend of our family, uh, which y'all don't care about. But he was interviewing this man who was a... I don't know exactly what he does, but like a radar supervisor or something. And he had taken uh, down a message that was a warning about incoming planes. The U.S. apparently was expecting their own planes, but they were just showing uh, some of these men who were veterans of World War II and who were at Pearl Harbor. And, And it just reminded me of, as some say, the greatest generation, these men and women involved too, who took leadership made the right moral choices, fought for the freedoms of so many. And it makes me long for that kind of leadership too. Like this is a duh type thing. Of course, it's the right thing to do to advocate for the rights of our fellow humans. Of course, that should trump some other political moves. This is the right thing. And yeah, I long for the day that we have the type of leadership that is clear about that type of thing. Okay, and our final story 
is talking about the vaccine mandates that have come from the the Biden administration. So I know that a number of churches out there, our sister entities, uh, a number of organizations have been trying to figure out how to navigate this. How will they implement several of these mandates that, that will affect uh, larger organizations? And I just thought this story was interesting because it's it's actually showing a bit of an evolution on the Democratic side of the aisle as it relates to the thinking about these vaccine mandates. So this comes to us from Politico, and it says Democrats are souring on vaccine mandates. Moderate and frontline members of the Democratic Party are singing a different tune. In recent comments, several high-profile Democrats have stated their opposition to vaccine mandates, specifically applied to private businesses. The most recent Democratic lawmaker to voice her concern was Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Once considered to be a pick for President Biden's vice president, Whitmer said she opposes mandates citing the impact on the state's workforce as Michigan grapples with upticks in cases and residents are split on whether or not to get the vaccine. President Biden himself was initially skeptical of requirements that people be vaccinated against the coronavirus out of a belief that most Americans would jump at the chance to get their shots if they were free and easily accessible. He wanted to steer clear of the politicization that has hampered much of the COVID-19 response, viewing mandates as a concept that could easily spark blowback. Quote, the concern all along was that mandates can be polarizing, that they have the potential to further entrench people in their resistance, said Celine Grounder, who advised the Biden transition on the COVID-19 response. So this is interesting. And, and one other thing that happened this week, folks may remember that an open comment period uh, came for the OSHA vaccine requirement. We talked about it previously on the podcast. That got bumped back into next year. It was originally supposed to be uh, Monday of this week. It's now got pushed back into 2022. And so there is some thinking out there that maybe these vaccine mandates are not the exact way to go. As folks out there will recall, the, the RLC has been pretty consistent in this, continually saying to government leaders, public health officials, give us guidance over mandates. Because when, when you continually are reinforcing that message and inviting people to be a part of the solution to combat coronavirus, as opposed to forcing them into something, that when you go that latter route, it, it often can put up hurdles towards accomplishing uh, the goal that, that you are seeking. And I think that might be a part of, of what we are seeing uh, here uh, with, with this report and some of the other indicators that are out there. You know, it's interesting to see how all of us have evolved regarding COVID and all of that. And as I mentioned, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, one of the reasons that I am not so alarmed at this point is because we have what I view as the gift of vaccines. And I know everyone has got their own choice. I just feel like the science is out there to show that the vaccines are doing their work uh, and helping prevent serious illness. I had some friends just recently who are vaccinated, who are older, and they, uh, the wife in particular, got so ill. She got pneumonia. She said, I've never been so sick before and is COVID. And I couldn't imagine what it would have been like without the vaccine. And she she was able to stay out of the hospital. And so... Um, so the vaccine did its job. Unfortunately, she did get sick, but I'm thankful that she is on the road to recovery. So yeah, we we are not for vaccine mandates, but we are for 
I am for you doing your research, asking solid, sound medical advice about the vaccines, and if you can, getting the vaccine to prevent yourself from getting ill and to prevent the spread in our community. Also, I'm very tired of talking about COVID, and I just hope it goes away. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. We've all reached a, a level of exhaustion uh, talking about COVID because, gosh, it's been with us since, I mean, I, I feel like most Americans kind of started casting a leery eye, what, maybe February of 2020, we first started hearing about this thing coming out of China. I remember I was over in Northern Ireland. Uh, we were doing our site visit for our Psalm 139 placement. and some of the the folks over in the UK they were they were really starting to talk about it uh but then it, it when we did eventually when we made it back it 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 really didn't hit us all here until uh, the first part of March so yeah it's been with us for a while now and um i think we're all a little tired of talking about it for sure but it's not necessarily done with us so go get vaccinated folks yes but the good news is i heard somebody talking the other day about Omicron, Omicron, right? And mm -hmm. uh, and how relating it to the Spanish flu and how the Spanish flu eventually died down because more strains would come in, but these strains were uh, more contagious, but less uh, severe. And so then eventually it cycles through everyone. So Omicron is looking to be that way. And hopefully this is what is happening. Mm -hmm. Well, I, one of the doctors that Meredith knows, who is an expert in all sorts of uh, diseases, he said at the very beginning of this, he's like, if this is a serious pandemic, it will take three years for it to get to a place where it is more manageable and it's it's an endemic thing that's in the background that that we live with. And he's like, there's there's really not much that we're going to be able to do to shorten that that time frame. Yeah, that makes sense because my friend who her husband is a doctor, he said uh, things probably won't get back to normal till our son is in kindergarten and he was two at the time. So. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, Lindsay, that's your look at This Week in Culture. Thanks for that, Brent. And now it's time for The Lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, you're up first. Okay, well, I'm I'm going first with something that you actually brought to the the team this week and I'm bringing it up because it just feels so absurd. Uh so th this this is a, a story that was reported by the New York Post and it says University of Pennsylvania transgender swimmer continues dominant season with more record-breaking wins. And you read through the story and it says a 22-year-old transgender swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania continued her dominant performance this season, setting numerous pool, meet, and program records at a three-day event in Ohio last weekend. And it says that she blew away her competition Friday night in multiple different events. And then it gets down to this. Before her transition... Thomas competed for two full seasons at Penn as a man. NCAA rules mandate at least one year of testosterone suppression treatment to be eligible to compete as a woman. And I just, the reason this kind of stuck out to me is because just last night, I took my oldest daughter 
to do basketball tryouts. It's the first time she's playing basketball. And I, I can already tell she's she's going to enjoy just playing something, a, a different sport other than than what she has been playing. But I was struck by, you know, here she is trying out the sport for the first time and she, she's actually doing really well. But if there was a boy out there that had also been playing basketball and and was just kind of dominating on the court, right? I would step back and be like, uh, this is this is not fair. This is not within the spirit of the game. And here, this story almost has like a celebratory mood about it. But if you look at the pictures here, this individual has clear physical advantages over the other female competitors. And in fact, as recently as a year ago, was competing as a man in male swim meets. And I just, it's like, what are we doing to, culturally, what are we doing? And then like, in this specific instance, what are we doing with sports? And it reminded me of a piece that our former trustee chairman, Pastor David Prince, uh, out of out of Kentucky, he wrote a piece for us last year. It was specifically talking about the Equality Act and what it would do to break down lines of competition between males and, and females. And, and he just wrote, in athletics, a refusal to account for biological sex-dependent differences will legally enshrine inequality in sports. In addition to being unfair, it is insulting and demeaning to females when we proceed as if biological males are the standard by which they ought to evaluate themselves. Acknowledging biological differences in athletic competition is as necessary as acknowledging differences in age. This is not hyperbole. Female athletes nationwide are already experiencing the unjust effects of our cultural gender chaos. And he goes on to list several examples. And I feel like, well, this instance out of the University of Pennsylvania, it can now be added to that list. Because at the end of the day, this is inequality. Uh, th- this isn't actually stri- This isn't actually accomplishing the things that so many folks will want you to believe it will accomplish. This isn't like fairness in sports. This is tearing down what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and particularly what it means to be those things in the context of sports. When it's insanity and it's not for our society's flourishing. And this, it was written by a sports reporter and it just is, it's silly because, I mean, it's not even legitimate reporting because facts aren't being, facts aren't being taken into account. You know, like you said, the swimmer, the transgender swimmer, continues a dominant season with record-breaking wins. Well, duh, what else do you think is going to happen? Because scientifically, a man is going to swim faster than a woman. It's just biological. It's not inequity in the sense that, a you know, a woman is lesser or whatever. It's just biology and how God has designed us. So it is, it's just insane, and it is not going to lead to good places in our culture. Now, on a completely different topic and something unserious because there's just too much serious stuff going on currently. I wanted to make a recommendation, and that is for the show, the series Hawkeye on Disney+. Plus. So my husband and I love some of the Disney Plus series. We loved The Mandalorian. We cannot wait till Boba Fett comes out, which I don't remember if that's the end of this year. Why are you laughing? I don't know if that's the end of... Is that what it's called, right? Yeah, it's called like the... Uh, the titles like the book of Boba Fett, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I just think it's funny that you're throwing around these Star Wars terms. It's pretty cool, isn't it? I don't, I don't know <laughs> that it is. 
Whatever. Maybe in some people's minds. Whatevs. Um, but so we look forward to that. But Hawkeye, my husband isn't as into it. He doesn't, he's not as into like the Marvel comic movies and such. And I haven't watched all of them. But this one is just delightful. It makes me laugh. It's Christmas themed. You just it just doesn't get any better than that. An action-themed Christmas show. I love it. It's like Die Hard, though. I don't recommend Die Hard, the language. There's some stuff in there. Do not recommend it, except for maybe the TBS version. But Action, Christmas, adventure. It's a family story. He's trying to get back to his family. It's just some good entertainment for the Christmas season. I'm about two episodes in, and I I love the fact that they situated it within the Christmas context, because I know that will bring me joy now. And if I watch it again next July, that will also bring me a lot of Christmas cheer. You're giving me a hard time. Well, for throwing around Star Wars lingo, but I didn't realize you watched this kind of stuff. Do you watch superhero? I comic watch superhero type stuff. Yeah. You do? Yeah. You see, it seems like you'd be sitting at home watching. C-span, I talked very favorite span app. Well, I do. Uh, well, and that's what I'm. I'm watching most of the time. Every now and then, Lindsay, I like to let my hair down a little bit. Yeah. Watch what's like happening to let your in the old flatten out. Watch, and- <laughs> watch what watch what's happening in the old Marvel universe. Does Meredith watch these things with you? She does. She doesn't uh the Star Wars stuff. She's like, I don't I don't get this. So I I don't usually watch it unless she's like already like falling asleep or whatnot. The superhero stuff though, she will kind of get into it every now and then. She loves like Black Panther. Mm-hmm. She thought that was just like mm-hmm. the most awesome action movie ever made. <laughs> so uh and it was good. Justin fell asleep in that movie. Well, at the movie theater. Well, he was tired. <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, yeah, I yeah, I'll watch it every now and then. Okay, well, it's not like at the top of my like to do list. Yeah, you know. Well, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm just giggling the whole way through because of the dialogue, and Justin is not giggling, but he's sitting there and tolerating it. So, if you're looking for a good show to watch, Hawkeye might be for you. And I think that's a good place to end it on a, an entertainment note. Just a reminder, you can find links to all of the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. And in addition to listening to this podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Thank mm-hmm. you.